Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Elon Medhavji and I'll be your host. Outer space is kind of a weird place. It's mysterious, it's full of wonder and untapped human potential, but at the same time it's kind of dangerous and presents new problems for us that we have no reference for on Earth. And this is kind of how I feel about the politics and diplomacy of space as well. Whether we're talking about the Cold War era space race of the past, or the marvel that is the International Space Station as a, a global human project, and we can even talk about the contemporary competition between the U.S. and China and all the security concerns that are related to that and the, the prospects of semi-permanent and permanent bases on the moon. Diplomacy has played a role behind all of these scenes, and it's shown that it can have an impact on how states and individuals act up there for better or for worse. So our episode today will help us understand that strange and unique landscape up there and hopefully give you a better idea of how diplomacy is shaping itself to tackle the modern issues presented by human ambition in space. Now, admittedly, space diplomacy is sort of a pet hobby and pet interest of mine. I've been waiting to, to do this episode ever since this podcast started a couple years ago, so I'm very excited. And when I was first reading into it back then, one thing that kept popping into my mind was, what is the point of space diplomacy? Like, why is there a need for an entirely different head on the screwdriver just for space? What makes it so unique? Why do we need to approach it differently? Why not just like regular old Earth diplomacy? And I think that's a really good point for us to start our discussion today. That's a question you might have in the back of your mind. So with us today to help us is one of the foremost experts on space diplomacy, and she goes by the name of Professor Maya Cross. She's also the co-editor of the brand new special issue from the Hague Journal of Diplomacy on Space Diplomacy, and normally plies her trade as the Dean's Professor of Political Science and International Affairs and Diplomacy, as well as the Director of the Center of International Affairs and World Cultures at Northeastern University in Boston. And what we're going to do is listen in on a conversation I was very honored to have with Maya to help us understand this a little better? Sure, that's a great question. I think there are some similarities for sure. And some of that comes from the fact that there's a wide range of actors involved in diplomacy, both when it comes to Earth diplomacy, so to speak, and when it comes to space diplomacy. So you see professional diplomats, private actors, regular citizens doing people-to-people -people diplomacy. Um, so you definitely have a similarity uh, in terms of the activities that are involved. But at the same time, the location of Earth versus space results in some automatic differences. So one thing to note is that space is designated part of the global commons. Um, in a sense, it's a very Earth-centric view because you can go way past the globe um, to get to these, these comments. But nonetheless, people have long sort of thought of space as belonging to all of humanity um, rather than on Earth where you think of national boundaries. And space as well, partly um, because of its status as as common to all of hu humanity, there are fewer formal regulations. This is also derived from the fact that, um, you know, 
people have have not really ventured into space that much yet. So the kind of the pressing need to develop formal regulations hasn't emerged yet. Space tends to be more norms driven. Um, but one thing that is happening because technology is developing, the space economy is growing, is that space as a location and the diplomacy that addresses it is changing rapidly. Um, part of that um, is still kind of mitigated by the fact that there are high barriers to entry. Not everyone can just go to space if they feel like it one day. Um, and, and because that activity is still very expensive, um, cooperation is, is a heavy part of, of space and space diplomacy. It's not just preferred um, space cooperation, it's, it's actually required. Um, the only way that humans can really get into space and to go further in a significant way is to cooperate. So I think space diplomacy is really being impacted by these kinds of differences, the, the scramble almost to kind of catch up with um, human forays into space and human existence and need that we see just sort of around the corner and evolving rapidly. Okay, you know, it's very interesting because from my my non-expert perspective, especially when you talk about global commons, like when you read yeah. old school literature on like space, they'll compare it to the high seas or like the Arctic or something like that, mm -hmm. which are the, the classic examples of global commons that, yeah, were, I guess, influenced very much by norms before we could catch up with uh, policy, be it like, you know, state policy or multilateral policy. And I wonder if space kind of has some of the same contradictions or I guess the, the dangerous double game that these other two spheres had where uh, even when you're talking about, okay, you know, it's, an, it's a norm-driven sphere. So mm -hmm. uh, with norm-driven spheres, we want run risks, right? There's the chance that certain norms develop that actually go against the kind of collaboration you're talking about that you say would be necessary. So I'm kind of curious in that very kind of fragile state what is diplomacy going to do in that state? How should we be employing diplomacy to perhaps highlight these common problems and the cooperation, you know, extract mm -hmm. the benefits from that and mitigate the potential of, you know, state-centric interest and uh, a lack of collaboration? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think with space diplomacy, there's a lot of potential there. There's also a big um, benefit for achieving the goals of space diplomacy in that, um, you know, the the track record actually has been intensively cooperative. So we have on the one hand, this rhetoric about space race and the potential for space race 2.0. Many of my colleagues actually think we're at the beginning of space race 2.0. I do not. I think a lot of that is the rhetoric that's coming from militarist actors and, and leaders who feel that they're under threat. But I think it's important to recognize that space is not weaponized and the norms of not weaponizing space have held. So diplomats then have somewhat of an easier time in that they can actually address this kind of landscape based on the reality that cooperation has been in place for some time. So even if you think about Sputnik, which was really sort of the beginning of the rhetoric of the space race, what led up to Sputnik was highly cooperative. It was the International Geophysical Year where in this unprecedented period of time, scientists from all over the world, um, including the Soviet Union, and the United States were sharing um, scientific breakthroughs with each other, including those breakthroughs involving space. 
So people were actually quite aware that Sputnik was the goal. In fact, there was a stated goal of that unprecedented sharing of the International Geophysical Year to launch a satellite into space, which would be the first one. Um, so that's just kind of one early example, but that really stands out in people's minds as, see, this is about um, competition. But if you really dig deeper, even the moon landing was actually conceived of as a cooperative venture between the Soviet Union and the United States and was official policy for a while. Um, then you start to see that diplomacy has a lot going for it when it comes to space. And so it has to, in effect, I think the key goal is changing the narrative, is to is actually revealing what actually is there and acknowledging that, you know, the idea, what I call the spaceflight idea, the idea of going into space on behalf of humanity is very powerful and has in inspired many, many people. It actually inspired a kind of social movement around it. Um, so if you look at it that way, you know, space diplomats are given a golden platter, sort of a whole range of options in terms of changing the narrative. Let me put my hands up and say that I'll be the first one to admit that my initial interest in space diplomacy all those years ago was very much influenced by this security lens. The dynamics of space powers going head to head in another space race, that was all very exciting to me. And I mean, it still is actually. But what Maya is really trying to tell us here is that space diplomacy has already proved so much in so many different fields that we should actually be much more confident in the power found in collaboration and sharing that's responsible for all the progress we've seen in outer space. And that's even during those times we were told it was about competition. So just to give you an idea of how grateful you and I need to be for space diplomacy and all the endeavors in outer space that have come as a result of it, let me just give you some examples. So anyone who's used the internet, TV, telephone, or GPS when they were lost in the last 50 years, we have space to thank for that. When you wake up in the morning and you need to know if you need an umbrella, weather forecasting, that's from outer space. And that's not to mention all the technology and scientific advancement that's also happened in outer space or as a result of technology we've developed for it. In operating theaters and hospitals around the world, there are groundbreaking brain and spinal surgeries done by robots with incredibly accurate capabilities derived from space technology. Not to mention other experiments on human biology that have dramatically improved our understanding of the aging process, cardiovascular issues, and diabetes. And then we get to the Earth as a being in and of itself. We predict natural disasters. We inform emergency aid from space. Our fight against climate change, how we track pollution, deforestation, desertification, that happens through satellite imagery and other detecting capabilities. It's even the small things. Day-to-day -day life, anyone who today fed their child with baby formula or woke up on a memory foam mattress or will later use a cordless vacuum cleaner, we have space to thank for that. All these things that are happening up there and down here have space diplomacy and cooperation to thank. The question now is, how can we find strength and confidence in this cooperation and make sure that we ultimately guide human activity in space along the lines of those values and perspectives? Yeah, I, I find your take uh, yeah refreshing because to be honest, you're 100% right that a lot of your colleagues uh, do not 
agree with you or share a different, maybe a, a different nuanced take on what you're talking about. Um, and yeah, perhaps the maybe the more inspirational human side, what you're talking about in the journal there, you know, there we touch on the the overview effect, right? The optimism you're talking about, I, I noticed that in some of the, the, the words that you wrote in the introduction, when um, I had the feeling that this bias towards security, whether it's in, in news or in high politics, I think that's sort of a self-defeating prophecy in the sense that we're missing out on so many other interesting topics and beneficial moments for collaboration. So what are the kind of opportunities that you think that diplomacy can highlight in these other non-security fields in order to perhaps um, even the, I don't know, the, the playing field in our own minds when we think of space diplomacy? Yeah, well, I think... You know, one thing to really focus on is the annual huge gathering of space actors, everyone from, you know, rocket builders to space enthusiasts, to engineers, to astronauts, to physicists and so on, 10,000 or so people come together every year. And all they talk about in every single panel is how they need to cooperate to advance the science, the technology, um, the small startups are represented there and they're excited about, you know, how they can be part of a bigger launch um, and provide new technology for breakthroughs. So I think when you really open up to see that this isn't just about, you know, a few big militaries in the world, militaries naturally, it's their job to think about the worst case scenario. But when you start looking beyond that, it's a very rich environment for interaction and cooperation. So I think for sure, the the size of the the global space economy is just growing dramatically every year. The technological breakthroughs, and this is another thing space diplomats can use. You know, all of the technology required to go into space, that same technology can be used on Earth. Military thinking, worst case scenario, they will say that's dual use technology that can be used to militarize space. While that may be true, states don't are not pursuing that route at the moment and and in some respects they are the, the technology isn't there yet um, but all of that technology benefits people on earth and so i think it's important to think about those breakthroughs um, and also the ways in which going into space inspires future generations to work in the scientific world yeah i, I was just gonna say i think like um it's a success story in my opinion of having the right people in the room and talking to all parties involved and making sure it's a collaborative process rather than say, yeah, focusing on, I guess, the sexier headlines of it all, which might steer you in the wrong direction, right? I think that's maybe something that space diplomacy will be an interesting forum for is, okay, mm -hmm. including the right actors at the right tables to make the right decisions as we are trying to push norms, but also push policy in parallel, right? That calls on kind of an interesting form of teamwork in diplomacy. Uh, yeah, actually, in my earlier work, I've called that um, epistemic communities. And so I would nice. just to kind of cut into what you're you're getting to um, space epistemic communities can be very important in this respect. Speaking of that, of that work, like, did you find that these uh, epistemic communities, is that is that something that has failed in other spheres? And for some reason, space is providing sort of a, a fresh chance for us to try it again? Or what is it about space that uh, can actually promote that in ways that other diplomacy, other types of diplomacy can? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, well, epistemic communities as knowledge-based networks 
pretty much bring together people who share expertise and then using that expertise, they develop policy that they also feel in common would benefit um, society. So space is unique in that, you know, you have all these sectors of science and engineering um, and environmental knowledge and biology and so forth. All of these different types of expertise can come together in different playing fields to talk about um, policy prescription. And they all see this as beneficial, right? Science, science diplomacy tells us um, all of that research in that area uh, that in many ways, because it's kind of politically neutral, cooperation is easier. Um, it's not always politically neutral when it comes to space. But um, I, I certainly think that these epistemic communities actually have a higher chance of succeeding in space. Um, epistemic communities do not always succeed if there's if there is sort of internal lack of cohesion or a lack of shared professional norms um, you may see this falling apart but oftentimes even in the worst situations um, you know us and soviet relations in the cold war us and china today you see um, epistemic communities of diplomats making inroads even when political leaders cannot so then if within that frame of mind, what what would success look like? Yeah, success would be this common proposal or proposals for um, policy that is shared across different countries, that is essentially a transnational understanding of what should be pursued. And in the context of space, this would be sort of a shared understanding and, and real belief that's reflected in policy that space should be explored as a common sort of you know a common region for all a, a global commons that everyone can take advantage of and benefit in together without conflict so that would be you know the pinnacle of success there but more moderate policy goals would involve other areas of cooperation more in the mid-range that allow states together to achieve things like building um, you know, at a space base of some sort on the moon that then allows astronauts to continue on to Mars. Yeah, that kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, this will be familiar to our Eurocentric uh, listeners, um, but that like the the roots of what we now call the European Union today was based on, in, in a way, there are some parallels to the situation where, okay, it was a you know a post World War II Europe, and uh, there was something that some thinking that okay, if we can bind ourselves together uh, along many different sectors and many different lines, uh, we can then sort of move forward as a collective. So that's a long economy. That's a long. Uh, language, media, culture, etc. Um, and I wonder if maybe like, would that be a fair parallel to make here in the sense that there is a, there's the potential that these epistemic communities, as you call them, uh, but in practice, that would mean uh, states, NGOs, uh, significant individuals, the diplomatic world as a whole, to start building partnerships and networks um, in, say, even non-security fields, uh, mm -hmm. to help one another out with technology, with science, with economics, uh, the value to be had from space resources. And then the idea is that from a, you know, your more realist colleagues would then say the cost of conflict would be too high uh, if there are more connections to be had in other parts of uh, space. 
Right. I mean, it's funny you should mention that parallel because I just finished a book that's in press now that was inspired um, in part by the parallel I saw between the EU and um, space cooperation. Um, it's called International Cooperation Against All Odds. And in both cases, I definitely noticed um, that there's this kind of original idea that emerges from leaders at the time, both in the case of the EU and in the 1920s and 30s, or even earlier for space, but this kind of very forward-looking, inspiring, um, path-breaking idea that humans, if they collaborate and cooperate, can achieve something really unprecedented. In the case of, of Europe, setting aside past conflict and achieving integration, giving up sovereignty for the cause of peace. And in the case of space, this long-held human sort of desire to expand boundaries, to explore, um, to, to really adventure and kind of um, advance what human beings are capable of in science and technology and, and understanding of the world around us. And so in both cases, these ideas sparked a movement, a social movement that then allowed for high levels of cooperation to occur and eventually these goals to be more or less achieved. So I, I definitely see that the book has other case studies as well of this, these kinds of, um, you know, the power of possibility and the way that ideas really matter. Um, and I think you're right that ultimately the power of ideas, if they really are successful, which oftentimes social movements or epistemic communities carry them forward, they persuade governments to act on them, um, that really um, provides a kind of buffer from the, the types of forces that would um, try to tear that apart to be more tribalistic, to be more competitive. Um, so there's always the possibility because of human agency that you lose this initiative, you lose this kind of I idealism that can inspire humans to work together. Um, but the more you build different sectors into sort of cooperative arrangements, um, like we're seeing in space today, the more you can prevent um, conflict and more of the realist types of predictions. Let's come back down to Earth for a moment, back to, to solid ground. These ideas we're talking about give us a nice frame for space diplomacy today. But what does that mean for space diplomats? Well, first off, I think one of the main takeaways we can make from this is that space diplomats come in many shapes and sizes. And they already operate in many sectors, actually. So we're not just talking about official state representatives sitting behind flags, right? This is about tech startups, think tanks, NGOs, scientific collectives, and multinational companies and their respective billionaire overlords. These are the people shaping the norms and practice of outer space already. And they've long outpaced the liberal democratic machine trying to catch up with rules and regulations. So now that we know this, what do we need to be demanding of diplomacy and these space diplomats when they walk into the office tomorrow? I mean, I think diplomacy has to adapt to the times. And if we're talking about space, it means that they need to notice that despite the, the amplified rhetoric about space race 2.0 and that space is going to be the next battlefield, they need to see past that to understand that this isn't actually what's happening in practice. There's always the risk of that. It can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, but that's not what's actually happening in practice. So if if diplomats have this expertise in space and they're tasked with working in this area, 
they should see that humans actually gravitate towards empathy. They, they seek to cooperate. That's how they can achieve their goals in space. Um, that forming epistemic communities and epistemic coalitions can help achieve those goals. Um, I think diplomats have some great tools at their disposal. I mean, they are experts in finding consensus and compromise. Um, in my historical examination of the 60s space race, um, it was diplomats and scientists who were behind the scene convincing Kennedy and Khrushchev to find areas where they might be able to cooperate. And it's amazing some of the ways in which these leaders then echoed back and echoed to the public some of what those diplomats behind the scenes were trying to convince them of. So I think there's a lot of potential there. You're right, it's usually behind closed doors, um, but we can reveal what role they play looking back um, at the, the record. And it is pretty powerful in my view. I wonder as we sort of move towards the final final thoughts here, um, maybe actually picking up on you know these points you were just making. If you were to provide you know, genuine personal advice to one of these diplomats to, you know, set them down and say, okay, please consider A, B, and C. Yeah. What, what would you be telling them? Well, first I would say focus on the public diplomacy dimension, because I think space has this almost unique capacity to inspire the general public. Um, when the, the first human beings landed on the moon, the reaction was global. People did not see this as Americans landing on the moon. They saw this as us, we humans landed on the moon. And so the public diplomacy side can really go a long way. I would suggest personally to diplomats to involve astronauts who've experienced the overview effect in this outreach to to explain to the public why it's valuable. You know, there's actually, I'm sure you've seen quite a, a public backlash to the idea that money is being spent on space exploration and not being spent on solving problems on Earth. Space diplomats, diplomats who are interested in space, need to explain the value of space exploration to us on Earth. Um, you, For every dollar spent on space, it comes back sevenfold on Earth. So this is something that diplomats can really sort of emphasize. And when you have the public understanding this, it's connected to the value of science as well, science diplomacy. It makes the job of elite diplomats talking to leaders of countries a little bit easier. Um, and I guess, secondly, I would say that, you know, of course, there, there are elements of competition going out on in the space realm. Um, this competition can be understood as productive because, you know, we always thrive when we're competing for new ideas and advancements in technology, and it can also be understood as um, sort of a threat. So being able to, to really um, understand and talk about space competition as being almost in a way a productive part of cooperation I think is key. So, so understanding that there's this healthy competitiveness um, that can occur individually, but ultimately can be brought together for the betterment of everyone um, is important. And then finally, I would say, you know, diplomats, especially when they are a community that operates transnationally, when they, when they come to a consensus of their own and they need to realize that they have agency um, of their own and as a group, 
that consensus is incredibly powerful. I've seen time and time again, looking at epistemic communities of diplomats, a whole range of case studies, even in realms that are historically fully connected to issues of state sovereignty, diplomats can persuade their leaders of new policy measures. Um, and usually diplomats want cooperative policy measures. Um, they can persuade them to shift their um, perspective, to move in a different direction, to embrace a new narrative. Um, and just understanding that they have this power and it comes from transnational consensus, I think um, is a really good tool to capitalize on. I know I usually end these with some practical take-home points, but Maya has kindly done that for us today in a way that I can never hope of, of achieving. I really hope that we've done a bit here to give you a more realistic view on what's happening up there in space and how diplomacy is and sometimes is not playing a role to influence that. If these topics were of any interest to you, I, I highly, highly recommend checking out the brand new special issue from the journal on space diplomacy. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please do stay tuned. Our next episode will be with Maya's co-editor of the special issue, Sadia Pekinen, who will tell us why Japan is at the forefront of space diplomacy and what we can actually learn from them. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really look forward to seeing you next time.